You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Boss Hog of Liberty, the uh, the studio at least. You got one half of the duo today. Jeremiah Morrill here with uh, a couple of fellows that are running for governor of the state of Indiana. This is the uh, the very first uh, governor's, we'll call it a debate or conversation or forum uh, in the uh, in the Newcastle studios of Boss Hog of Liberty. On my immediate left is uh, Don Rainwater and to my far left, uh, camera far right is uh, is Bill Levin. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. So um, the reason we're having this uh, this conversation today is we are about nine days away from the Libertarian Party's uh, state convention, right. and that is where the Libertarian candidate uh, candidates ask the delegates for their support, and we, as a party, select our candidate for governor. Right. You have each declared your your uh, candidacy and have been uh, visiting with uh, libertarians at uh, county conventions across the state uh, in a pilgrimage I'm very familiar with. In 2016, I was working with Rex Bell's campaign, so uh, I thought this is a great opportunity to get you guys together and uh, and talk through uh, why each of you feels like you're the best candidate uh, for the state of Indiana. So, uh, just to start, I'd like I'll start with Don, and then we'll go to we'll go to Bill. Just a little bio info and. Introduce yourselves to the uh, to the folks that are watching the live stream and listening to the podcast to get to know you a little bit, and then we'll we'll get into some issues as we uh, as we get going. Certainly, sure. So, as you said, my name's Don Rainwater. Uh, I have been a lifelong Hoosier. I was born uh, here, grew up on the east side of Indianapolis, graduated from Warren Central High School in 1981, uh, went to college for a semester, uh, then joined the U.S. Navy and was in the Navy for eight years and as an enlisted person. Uh, got out of the Navy, uh, ended up uh, doing various things, uh, kind of settled on software engineering as a career, have been doing that for the past 20 years. Uh, back in 2016, uh, I started getting really frustrated with what I saw going on. Uh, decided that it was time to get up off the couch, get involved, uh, knew that I did not have any interest in participating in either of the old parties because I saw them as the source of what was wrong with our government system. So I looked around, found the Libertarian Party was the uh, really the embodiment of how I felt as an individual, which I think is is – Really, the foundation of libertarianism is the you know the individuality of all of us. So I've run for uh, state senate in 2016 against Luke Kenley, uh, ran for state representative in 2018, and then last year I ran for mayor of Westfield. All right, very good, Bill. Hi, 
my name is Bill Levin. I have been a resident of the state my whole life. Um, I have been in promotions and marketing for 40 years. I have produced concerts. I was the promotions and marketing director for the Karma Record Store when we had 42 stores. Um, this is my third run uh, as a libertarian. I came to the Libertarian Party, uh, personal freedom, bottom line, personal freedom. That and the others have issues. I need you to turn your mic just a touch towards you, Bill. It's, there you go. There you go. Now, now you're all over it. It's, I'm it, all over it. It cuts okay. in and out there just for a second, but you'll be perfect like that. And uh, right now, uh, I'm running for governor of the state of Indiana. I have an excellent team, and uh, we're going to go forward and win. All right. That's about it. So you, you ran, I, I do remember a race for the city council in, yes. in Indianapolis. And then state house after that. Okay. So right. this is the third run. Third time. Very good. That's, that's that's where I'm at too. I've, I've, done, I've got three. I've got three under my belt. First is always the most exciting. <laughs> well, uh, they are all. Uh, they're all just a little. Well, bit, uh, we we didn't know better the first time. <laughs> that's right. It's the second and third that's time right. we knew better, but we're still doing it. But you're still you're still in. <laughs> all right. So let's start. This is a unique uh, a unique situation because instead of being it, on the primary ballot, you're you're only audience until you get the nomination is winning over the delegates to the libertarian party, you know, at their convention, um, you know, instead of going to a publicly funded primary process where you've got folks showing up in may it's, it's a privately funded operation and you can almost target the individuals that are going to be voting. What do you see as the, as the, the banner that you're carrying, and I'll start with Bill for the, for the Libertarian Party. If you're the if you're the Libertarian Party's nominee for governor, what's that mean to you? Love, personal liberty, um, less government. I mean, right now we got to go in and, and and chew away at all the wasteful bits and pieces that are going on, and uh, we need to make sure that our people have proper education and have less government in their lives. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Everything is a licensing fee. Um, I, I just want to go forward and do good. You know, that's really where it's at. We need some honest politicians out there who have love in their heart and who have an understanding of the voice of the people, not the corporations. Oh. I'm, I'm, aggra- I'm very aggressive with my water bottle. <laughs> oh, hey, I saw it jump out of your hand. <laughs> it's, it's got a little, uh, little spring on the bottom of it. Don, what, to, how about yourself? Well, uh, I'll tell you, in, in my opinion, uh, the first thing that, that I want people to know is that I believe we have a unique opportunity here in Indiana. You know, in 1994, uh, the Libertarian Party of Indiana gained ballot access, and we've had it ever since, which means that uh, unlike many of our brethren in other states, when we run for a... Uh, a partisan office, people see the name libertarian next to our names on the ballot, which means that the uh, principles and the uh, policies that we espouse when we run are able to be identified with us as a party, which means that whoever sits at the top of the ballot is able to put out a message that all of the people down the ballot who are running are able to benefit from and expound upon, 
So I think it's really important for us as libertarians to be able to uh, move that forward with um, things like the fact that we want to reduce the size and scope of the state government bureaucracy. You know, we want to um, secure the rights of the individual. much like Bill said, uh, we're not as concerned with corporatism or identity politics uh, other than the fact that the most important identity uh, is the identity of the individual. You know, we are all unique. And then, you know, thirdly, we want to make sure that people know that uh, we want to help them keep more of their money in their pocket. And so we want to reduce taxes. And I think those three things really uh, set the foundation for everything that a libertarian in Indiana would want to run on. So uh, we are in the midst of the, uh, the short session of the general assembly. Uh, and I think this cycle started uh, with the red for ed movement and at, at organization day, you saw a whole lot of folks show up at the state house mm-hmm. uh, wearing red, red shirts right, right, right. and, uh, and dominated the, the media cycle. Uh, we'll start with we'll start with Don this time. I want to hear from you on the on the response. You know, if you were sitting in the governor's office and you see this activism coming from the from the public schools in the public school teachers, how do you read and how do you view the Red for Ed movement? And what do you, what do you say to the the folks that are demonstrating at the state house? Well, I think to a, a great extent they have a lot of uh, valid concerns because really what they're saying is. Uh, we want education back in the local school district. We want to be able to uh, teach in the classroom, deliver to students, and, and not have all of the massive government oversight. Uh, and, and I think that in, in, a, in a lot of ways, uh, whether they come right out and say it or not, what they want is a more libertarian response to education. I think one of the first things uh, that we need to look at is eliminating iLearn. iStep and iLearn have both been complete boondoggles. Uh, we're currently spending $15 million a year. There's a, a three-year contract right now, $45 million committed to a standardized test that they've already in the first year admitted, well, you know, we still can't get it right. We still can't get uh, the scoring correct. We, we really don't know what we're doing. And then they've basically held teachers harmless. And the reality is, is we shouldn't be using a standardized test to measure teacher performance in the first place. It's not a fair measurement. Uh, it is actually a detriment to uh, time in the classroom that students should be learning. You know, one of the things that uh, our incumbent governor is currently uh, pushing is the uh, education of people in prison uh, to reduce, resi- uh, yeah, the the rate of return. Pardon me. It's a tough uh, recidivism. There you go. I I, I and, listen. Yeah. I avoid it too because I have the same struggle. But <laughs> but the the reality is is that. 
if we did a better job of educating our young people in high school and and giving them uh, skills that they could actually take out and start working instead of graduating high school uh, and and feeling like they have nowhere to go because they can't afford college and they don't they they don't have a skill to go out and get a job so they go out and get in trouble end up in prison then we want to train them well how about we take the money that we're wasting on our K through 12 education today and focus that better and give people the opportunity to get trades, uh, technical education. Uh, our high school students should be able to graduate with something tangible other than a piece of paper that says that they passed a standardized test because here again, the standardized test is nothing more than a one size fits all solution. Yeah, and I think that's something we've tried to highlight through the uh, through the Boss Hog program is bringing folks in through the uh, Newcastle Career Center and the Trade School uh, on this on this program and, and giving some exposure to that. And that's right. that's actually run through the uh, through the, the local public school system here. Uh, Bill, let's uh, we haven't had a chance to weigh in on on the on the Red Fred and the education topic. Uh, yeah, I, how, how do you see it? Well, it's a nightmare, just like everybody else. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's. We have to give the parents more choice. You know, the parents don't have a say-so in this. It's down to the um, local communities. But the state government has too many rules for the local communities to actually get involved. So it's a catch-22 here. Less state government is definitely the issue. Um, it's, It's a fun mess. You know, it's a fun mess. There are the hi. We need less government and more parental put input into this. You know, it's just there. So, would you have would you have a specific response to the to the teachers that were rallying, or uh, just a yes and you know a, a yes and to to do their, I think their, they need more money? Well, it's it, it was money. It was be, wanting to be held harmless. It was there were you know there were a handful of different. You know, right now they're paying for papers and supplies to get into the you know for their own classes, which is ridiculous. The students have to pay for their extra, extracurricular activities, extracurriculars, books, etc. I, 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 there was one student who got a bill because he went to the counselor, and I guess there's an allotted amount of times you can go see the counselor before they start charging you. Mother got a twelve hundred dollar bill. Out of nowhere, the school called her up and said, you got a $1,200 bill. Cause this is an IPS school or an Indianapolis school? Somewhere in Indianapolis, okay. over in Speedway. And it was just like, how did you get that? You know, where, where did that? And they said, he saw the counselor too many times. And uh, they, they send a bill back. And it, it's like, it blew my mind. You know, how, how, is every, you know, we have book fees and we don't have books. They don't have books anymore. Kids don't bring books home. They do their homework on an electronic device, but yet the parents on top of the taxes have book fees for books we don't get. So uh, in your, in each of your views, are there specific changes you want to see made? You know, in Indiana, we have to have provide for public education. It's in our constitution. Um, Is it, Hey, I want the state to stop making decisions and go to school boards to make to make these decisions and to you know teacher pay grading all of this is instead of being a state responsibility being a, a local school board what's your what's your preference? I'd like to see the school board do it, but I'd also like to see the 
administration fees knocked down because the teachers aren't getting enough. Administrators are getting ungodly six figures. When you're paying a teacher twenty, thirty thousand, and you're paying an administrator a hundred and twenty, no, nah, that's not right. Okay, it's just not right. The teachers need to be making a decent, honest wage. And administrators need to be cutting down on their end because there's too many administrators. We have two sets of books for the schools. We have a uh, uh, the maintenance of the buildings and all the uh, grounds. And then we have the regular school um, teachers. The wages and the yeah. headcount. There's a, why do we have two sets of books? That gives you two sets of administrators. All right. You know, we should have one checkbook for that and let one person decide it rather than having double, you know, double staff on that. Anything else on the education side, Don? Oh, I think there are a lot of things. We could probably spend an entire yeah, I mean, hour. This could on, be dissected real nicely. But but there are there are several things that I think are really germane to the problem. You know, we, we live in a state where approximately sixty percent of the state budget is supposedly spent on education. However, the majority of that money does not go to the classroom. If you go out and you look at the state department of education website, there are a, uh, an inordinate amount of programs, many of them duplicitous uh, that are listed on the website. There's money going to many things that really aren't directly involved in educating children uh we have here just recently you know we find out that the state overpaid two charter schools in the vicinity of 68 million dollars because of a lack of oversight and uh, our incumbent governor says well now that we've uh taken away your right to vote for the state superintendent of public instruction, and I'm going to appoint that person, well, we'll fix that. Well, the governor is responsible for appointing people to the State Board of Education. The State Board of Education is supposed to be overseeing That's the way that that things. process was designed. Exactly. Governor, so, governors have historically wanted to, because governors feel like they get judged on education, they want essentially a cabinet level person. And that's what's happening after Jennifer McCormick's sure. term is up right. is that it will be a, a governor's appointee for superintendent. But here again, that's just one more thing in the laundry list of things like the BMV overcharging Hoosiers, uh, the department of veterans affairs, misappropriating uh, grant money uh, to people who work for the department of veterans affairs, uh, the fact that we had to go to the state of Georgia uh, to get a consulting company to come in and tell the governor how to fix the Department of Child Services. Evidently, nobody in Indiana is smart enough to figure that out on their own. He had to go pay somebody in Georgia to do that. This is just another, that $68 million in those charter schools is just another indication that our state government is too big and they can't oversee themselves. And so we've got to reduce the scope and size of government, and, and we've got to hold them accountable. The governor, it, that's where the buck stops, whether he likes it or not, and he can send cease and desist orders to the media all he wants. 
the reality is, is the people of the state of Indiana should know what's going on in their government, and the government should hold itself accountable. So continuing to watch the news cycle and what's coming out of the state house, this last week we saw a um, a bill that the governor's office was very interested in. Uh, it passed the, the house, and now this last week it passed the Senate, uh, dealing with mobile phone use in cars. So I... This is a fun libertarian issue, so I'll, I'll give you guys a, a nice Arg. one, a nice one to jump in with, uh, and we'll we'll start with Bill. Would you, if you're in the governor's chair and you get a bill that says, "Hey, we're going to regulate s- mobile phones in cars," are are you signing it? And there's 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 almost two different conversations you can have. It's okay. There's the Larry Sharp, the guy that ran for governor of New York, who says, "Well, safety is one thing, so maybe there's a safety concern or." It's none of your business. I'm not signing it. It's it's what happens in my car is my car. Where do you, how do you weigh in? How do you how do you dissect that as the libertarian governor? What, what's going on in my car is my car, and if I turn off my phone, I don't know where I'm going because I use Google Maps. You know, turn off your phone. Oh, great! And now everybody's driving in circles, going to gas station, asking for maps that used to be free that now cost nine ninety five. You know, no way. All right, so you're not signing. No. All right, Don. Oh, I'm absolutely not signing it. I, I, if they want that, they're going to have to override the veto because um, that's the slippery. Pardon me, the slippery slope of what's the next thing that you're going to tell me is distracted driving that I can't do? Are you going to tell me that I can't stop at a McDonald's drive-through and get something to eat while I'm on the road because that might cause an accident. Uh, one of the problems that we have in Indiana and it really across the United States is this notion that it's government's job to protect us from ourselves and to make sure that we don't do something where we might actually hurt somebody else down the road in the future by something that we do that causes some chain reaction. And that's not the way that it should work. I believe that if you really want to stop people and make them think that you make the penalty for hurting somebody or taking their stuff really hurt, but you don't tell people we're going to make you a criminal by doing something because you might do something wrong because you're doing that thing. And to me, the cell phone thing is one of those things. And that's that's one of the conversations I've always had as a libertarian is that anytime you have a law, you're creating violence, right? At the end of it, when when you have you have a rule you want somebody to follow, and if they don't follow, well, then, then at some point, a law enforcement officer has to step in, and then it's always backed by force, which becomes conflict, which can potentially become violence. Right. So no matter how benign your law is at the end of the, at the end of the line where the rubber meets the road, you got a guy with a gun that has to enforce the politician's view. Right. Right. I mean, the word banning isn't, is not a libertarian word, you know, banning anything is very non-libertarian. All right. So another, another topic that's been rolling through the state house and, uh, I think this bill may have, uh, may have been killed, but, uh, until, until the general assembly, closes something's never dead right um but 
road construction and traffic safety is another issue. And the governor's office has, has been in discussion about uh, supporting traffic cameras for use of, of safety enforcement in construction zones. Where, where do we stand on that one? If, if, if the same if, way we feel about the ones in Carmel and the same way we feel about the ones in, in Fishers. No. No cameras. No cameras. No government cameras. No, we don't need them. Why? Why? Where I travel is really none of anybody's business. You know, it's my life, my travel time, my adventure. And uh, to be just part of somebody's data flow, no, thank you. It's none of their business what I'm doing. It's a personal freedom. All right. No, no safety, no safety winning on this one, Don. Well, here, here's the, here's the thing with, with things like this. I would want to sit down and read the bill and understand what's being proposed in the bill. And, and because I haven't looked at this. Sure. And because one of the things that I have discovered is that uh, you can ask three different people who've read a bill, what does this bill do? And those three people will give you their individual spin on what you what they want you to think that bill says and what it does. My personal feeling is, is that uh, government-owned, government-controlled cameras are inherently part of the problem, not part of the solution. So I would lean toward... Uh, I don't want anything that can be misused uh, by the government in a way that would reduce individual freedom. All right. Very fair. Um, the next topic that I want to, uh, that I want to start to dive into uh, is criminal justice and the criminal justice system. Our studio here sits about 300 feet away from our County jail. Uh, and in Henry County, where we uh, where we host the show every week, um, the consistent conversation has been our jail is overcrowded, like almost every other county jail is in the state. There are 91 county jails in the state. Uh, countless times in the show, we've talked about Rush County, Decatur County, Adams County, Vigo County, Hancock County, Marion County, all in now Henry County, all in the process of opening new jail facilities or building new jail facilities because the state changed their laws uh, saying that level five and level six felons are coming back to the counties. And the state said, well, yeah, you got to deal with them now. Prison populations have dropped at the state level, but at the counties, they are bursting at the seams and the state gave them the tool of raising their income taxes to pay for construction of new jails. Um, so this has been a very important issue in, in our community. And since it's our show, my show, and we're 300 feet from the, from the antiquated jail that we're going to be replacing. Uh, and my taxes just went up. We're going to have this conversation. So I want to hear from, I, I think we started with Don last time or we start with I Bill think last time. So. so let's, we'll start with, we'll start with Bill. Bill. Um, what do you, what do you think? Well, right now, uh, I think we should, um, get all cannabis users immediately out of jail. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's a health issue and they shouldn't be in jail. Every single one of them that's held, uh, is held in prison for, I think it's $37,500 a year. Each one of those prisoners. Now here, here, here's something that I discovered while, you know, doing research with our government. And this, 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 this upsets me more than anything else in our government. 
we have 5,000 untested rape kits. 5,000 women have been brutally raped. And these kits are sitting in a shelf somewhere, and they've never been tested. This has been going on for years. We have women, we have children, we have grandmothers, we have daughters, we have aunts, we have moms who have been brutally raped in the state of Indiana, and all the evidence is sitting in one locked room, and not one person in our state has done anything about this. We have a billion dollars sitting in our state right now. I think we could find the money to give these women closure. This is probably the one thing I have found out about my state that I am so am ashamed of. Okay? When this kind of criminal activity is going on and they're wasting their money arresting cannabis users instead of going out and taking care of these tests to give these women closure and to prosecute the people who did these crimes. This needs to be focused on, without a doubt, above everything else, because some of those test kits are past due. They can't be used because it's been over seven years. And you have a seven-year statute of limitations. Yeah, it's past the statute of limitation. I'm sorry, seven years ago you got raped. We haven't had the time or the money to test it. How can somebody even look at a woman and tell them that? So, hi. That's sort of where it really upsets me a lot right now. So that's the top of your criminal justice. Well, right now, yeah, yeah. I would I would let go of all the cannabis people and I would put in uh, all those test kits straight away because the women of this state need closure. And our state government has done zero for them. All right. Don, on the uh, on the county jail issue and the, the, the capacity or the sure. head count. Sure. Well, I, you know, I think... F- there's a couple of things that we need to look at. Uh, first of all, uh, and probably foremost, uh, there are probably folks that are sitting in jail who have uh, committed what we categorize as nonviolent crimes who could be sent home on home detention and relieve a lot of the uh, population in the county jails. Uh, Obviously, as Bill said, uh, there are folks who probably have been convicted of nonviolent offenses, whether they be drug offenses or other types of offenses where uh, they should have never been convicted of a crime because there was no crime committed. And we need to reform our criminal justice system to refocus on uh, real crime instead of, uh, you know, whether somebody was caught with an ounce of pot uh, in their car or uh, whether somebody um, accidentally uh, damaged something uh, through no fault of their own, but because of the way a law is written, they end up in... uh, jail overnight or for several days, um, 
people who have to get back and forth to work but lose their license because they got caught driving uh, without their seatbelt on. And so when they get their license suspended and they drive back and forth to work, they get pulled over, they get arrested for driving without a license, and they end up in jail. Uh, These are all things that we shouldn't have people sitting in jail cells for. And we need to reevaluate how we do um, criminal justice. Because here again, if you're not a criminal, you shouldn't be sitting in a jail cell. And the reality is, from the libertarian perspective, if there's no victim, there's really no crime. So this is the criminal justice issue, I think, probably transitions into into a larger conversation about prohibition. And I think you both referenced Certainly. it. And healthcare. Okay. All right. Because prohibition and healthcare all go hand in hand. The whole let's look at Portugal. They had uh, huge drops in crime reduction when they went full legal. Um, their health standards went up, their AIDS went down, uh, communicable diseases went down. It everything leveled out well. And Washington State uh, Washington State, when they legalized cannabis, I think uh, murder rate went down thirteen percent. So what we do as human beings with our body is our business. It's nobody's business outside of that, unless we are being distracted and I'm messing with your life, you know, unless you're, unless you're hurting somebody else or causing harm. It's a, it's a live and let live. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the, it's the first deity. You know, that's right. You are the reverend. Yeah. Um, Don, let's talk about prohibition a little bit. Sure. And, and I think right now we have a really unique opportunity to talk about prohibition in the context of uh, what what uh, I've heard Tony Katz call the nanny state. I like that label. Um, and the idea that uh, you must be 21 years old to uh, purchase nicotine, to vape, uh, to purchase alcohol, you you got to be twenty one. So that was a, that was a nice surprise. Uh, the, the state of Indiana was going to try to achieve that on their own, but our um, our our senator, yes, uh, Todd Young, and and some others were able to sneak that or slip that into the uh, the spending bill last right. year, and we got a surprise weekend signing by President Trump of uh, 21, 21 years old to buy to buy and consume tobacco, right. And, you know, I think um, being a a veteran uh, myself, uh, I believe that if uh, an individual is old enough to make the decision to take up a firearm and voluntarily go uh, 2,000 miles away uh, to possibly make the ultimate sacrifice uh, as a member of the military, then they should be able to make any decision that any other adult can make. If you're 18 years old and you can join the military, at 18 you should be able to buy a pack of cigarettes. At 18 you should be able to purchase alcohol and uh, cannabis or vaping or any other adult decision that you choose to make. And the, the concept of prohibition, here again, is the idea that the government – knows better than you what's best for you. And to take it a step further, 
Really what it is, is the concept of collectivism. Prohibition is the idea that we need to make everybody do what we think is right for everybody. You know, the argument against cigarettes is, well, if you smoke, your health insurance cost, I have to pay for. Well, I'm sorry. Because we're, we're in a pool, right? right. Yes, yes, yes. You know, here again, now what we're doing is we're taking uh, an issue of economics created by uh, regulatory uh, restrictions on commerce through insurance and saying that because we don't want to regulate the insurance companies or even better, reduce some regulations so that the free market can dictate what people pay for insurance or what people pay for their health care. No, we're going to tell everybody uh, you need to stop smoking so that all of us can pay less for our health insurance. And so that, that overarching holistic problem of government uh, engaging in social engineering comes out as, oh, you can't do this till you're 21. And I think that that's just totally uh, counterintuitive here again because it's collectivism. It's counterintuitive to securing the rights of the individual. So we've seen in some states prohibition of cannabis has, has gone away. So Nevada, I think, is a state that has has recreational. Uh, and their General Assembly or their legislature has actually tried to take another step. And this is a, 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 a good question, I think, for me to and for our viewers and, and the delegates that are going to be out there listening to help see how you view government and, and the role of government. The state of Nevada says cannabis is legal. You can consume it. Your employer may have a policy that says, look, you can't do that where we work. You know, it, we employ you. And if you have, if you te- we send you for a random and you test positive, then we can end your employment. The state of Nevada says, we're going to protect the people of the, of our state and say, you can't test again. You can't test for this. It's no longer going to be legal. So that's, that's another one of these delicate conversations, or I want to, I want to kind of peel the onion back a little bit and say, okay, how do we side on this? Is it as a libertarian and as the potential libertarian candidate, is it, uh, the state has no authority to get involved between a, a private relationship between an employer and employee, or is it, the state protects the rights of people to do what they want to do. I'll start. I'll start with Bill, and then work over to mm-hmm. work over to Don. Um, it, 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 the state is definitely providing freedom for the individual. Um, yes, I mean, I agree with Nevada. Insurance companies are inherently evil. You know. Just, I have a relationship with you as a doctor and you and you as a nurse. Okay, there's three people here. I'm I'm giving you my money. We bring in an insurance company. Now that two cent aspirin just went through the tallest building downtown to get processed because they're always the insurance buildings downtown that have the tallest buildings. So my bill went all the way through all those desks, and now it comes back that I got a nine dollar bill. 
for an aspirin because 40 people handled the transaction between me and you and they had to get their piece. Bit of a pip, isn't it? All right. Don? Restate your question for me, if you would. <laughs> the state of Nevada yeah. says we, you, you guys, the employers, you can't drug test your employees anymore, right. theoretically. Is that right? Is that the proper role of government? Essentially, that's the question. So, and, and to not be hokey, because I really believe this is germane to everything that we look at. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we have inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness as defined by the individual, not the state. Uh, James Madison later said that also includes property and your property also includes your thought, what you believe. Uh, And then Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, uh, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Nowhere in that statement do I believe that it says governments are instituted to protect the rights of corporations. I believe it says that the sole purpose of government is to secure the rights of the individual. And so if there needs to be a uh, determining an adjudication, if you will, of who has the rights in a particular case. The individual should always come first. So I would say that Nevada is perfectly within their rights uh, to say, if I interpret that the individual has rights, then I'm supposed to secure those rights. And if we've said this is legal, then you need to show some other cause. Now, if you say as a business, we do not allow you to smoke it on the premises and you get, smoke, you get caught smoking on the premises, that's a little different. But the idea of drug testing, that is an, inf- an invasion of the right to privacy. Okay. All right. Then in, on that side, you, you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My body, my choice. It's not anybody's business. All right. Let's, uh, let's further talk about the, the power of, of the governor of Indiana. Um, and I, I think Bill referenced it earlier with, with some licensing. Um, licensing, regulation. You know, we have, a, we have, we have folks that, that are responsible. We have a state board of chemists. We have all kinds of government oversight if you go to the you know you go to your barber or you go to a cosmopolitan they have a they have a a little slip that right. says that they have permission from the state to mm-hmm. to to do this is that something that you think is an appropriate job of the state of indiana to to be regulating or licensing occupations occupational licensing I th- and i think we start with don this time sorry it's my this is the first time i've moderated a debate yeah, in a while know, so <laughs> it's it's conversational anyway but if i if i skip you at all please you know, please throw a bottle at me. Overall, water I, or beer, you, yeah. you choose. Overall, I believe that occupational licensing is not the purview of the state. Um, if you go back and you look at um, the uh, guilds that were commonplace uh, 
uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, and really up until they kind of morphed into unions, um, those guilds uh, basically um, vouched for the people that joined them. I believe that as libertarians, we believe in freedom of association. And if you want to go to uh, a barber, obviously I don't go to a barber. You may go and go very often. We, well, it could be your secret. No? That's, that's true. Um, but if you want to go to a barber that is not uh, certified by the uh, Indiana Association of Barbers, then that should be your choice. Um, it It is, uh, there are a very few professions that I believe fall under the purview of government securing the rights of the individual. Um, but I, it, to, based on what I've been able to see, you know, the Indiana Bar Association is its own entity unto itself. And the Bar Association regulates attorneys. The state doesn't. So if the state doesn't regulate attorneys, why do they regulate hairdressers? Why do they regulate massage therapists? These these are uh, situations, in my opinion, where uh, the lobbyist for a group, whether it be, let's take the beauticians, okay? There are beauticians colleges all over the state of Indiana who would probably have to shutter their doors if people who wanted to be beauticians could go to another beautician, say, teach me, let me learn from you, be my mentor, let me come in here and work, and you teach me, but instead, we have state-mandated uh, education requirements where you have to go to a state-approved school in order to get a certain amount of state-approved education before you can take a state test to be licensed as a beautician. And that is a, an obstacle to entry into a career field, and I think that's wrong. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, career fields that the Indiana uh, Professional Licensing uh, Agency uh, oversees uh, that they should not. Uh, that should be, you know, real estate agents. Let let the the real estate board manage that. Let them decide. And the reality is, is if I want you to sell my house for me and you defraud me, then I can take that to court. You have court to, to adjudicate. Exactly. Bill? Ask the question again. I, I was following. Occupational licensing um, in, the, in the state's role. It, the state is excessive with it. I mean, I have friends in the tattoo business all over the state. Um, their licensing is yearly. They've got. The usual things that barbers have, beauticians have. And then on top of that, they have zoning. Hi, because you cut hair, because you're a barber or you're a tattoo artist, you can't be within, was it 200 or 500 feet of a school or a church? 
you know, we have weird zoning laws here um, that are, are, are just ridiculous. I, I, I don't understand it at all. Uh, we also have beer building codes that make no sense. We are the most extensive building codes there are in the state. Um, we need we need hempcrete, and that's not a building code, and our farmers are growing it. You know, we need to bring that around. So there's a four or five answers for one question. <laughs> that's very fair. Uh, let's see. The... Uh I wanted to talk about something I, I know you've been involved with, Bill, um, and that's the homelessness. Not as much uh, of an issue here in in Henry County where we're sitting, but you're from Indianapolis, yes. and it's uh, it, it's definitely been a highly publicized issue in the last few uh, few years in the city of Indianapolis. And I know you've been working on that issue in the private sector. So I wanted to hear, I guess, how you how you view that on the private side. And any role that the governor would have or the governor's office would have combating the issue of homelessness in Indiana. We, we have more homeless now in Indiana than ever before in recorded history. Uh, we go out every Saturday. We, when I say we, I mean hearts and hand homeless outreach group. Uh, and you can find them on Facebook. Got to plug them. Um, we go out and we serve hot meals every uh, Saturday night. And uh, the Muncie crew does the same thing on uh, Monday night. It's a healthcare issue. It's a affordable living issue. Um, it's a, there's a lot of people who need social services who do not have the skills to acquire or the knowledge of where these social services are available. We might have them already established within our government, but we have no way of communicating to the people who live on the edge of the river that these services are available. Um, it's, it's, there's, no, there's no fixed answer. There really isn't. Um, there's a lot of help. I'd like to see a lot of private groups go out and help the homeless. Um, it's not really the government's job. The government can make the laws more open for the homeless. We're throwing homeless off of government property. Okay. They'll, they'll stay along riverbeds because that's not city owned. That's, that's government owned. Okay. Uh, We should be at least addressing the need for campgrounds in these areas with washing and cleaning facilities. We have parks everywhere. Okay. Um, if you're homeless and you can't buy something, it's difficult to go to the bathroom. Okay. People will not let you in to go to the bathroom. There are just certain human rights that are lacking for people on the street. And we just need to bring attention to it. We need to help these people where we can and give them a leg up. Don, how much, what, what's your view? Well, I think, first of all, that it is a complex problem that has been um, really exacerbated by the fact that, uh, first of all, here again, we have such a huge bureaucracy. There's so much money that is supposedly earmarked for certain um, 
as you mentioned, social programs where the money never gets to the people. It's all chewed up in uh, the bureaucratic game of government. Uh, we need to fix that. We need to go in and we need to find out where the money is being, uh, where it's going and why it's not going to help the people. It's, it really is supposed to be designed to help. Now, uh, beyond that, we have the issue of government regulations that actually um, deter and discourage uh, private nonprofits, whether they be faith-based or not, uh, from going out and helping people. Uh, I have heard stories, and I'm sure you both have as well, of um, people going out to feed people and being told, you can't do that, you don't have a license to serve food. Or, um, you know, the police going out and tearing down a, uh, a tent city where people are living. Uh, there is no, well, let's figure out how to solve this problem. It's just, well, we don't want these people here. It looks bad. Um, and the reality is, is it's a tremendously complex situation because we've let it go for literally decades. And we've let government tell us that they're going to take more money out of our pocket out of our paycheck, um, from our property taxes, to go solve problem X. And as Ronald Reagan said, um, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And the bureaucracy and the bloat and the glut and, and the fact that, that nine time, probably nine out of $10 gets uh, allocated to somebody who isn't really the person in need, and we need to fix that. So the homeless issue is something that I know Bill Bill's talked about uh, uh, throughout this campaign. And Don, when you were running for state rat or state senate, I think one of the biggest issues you talked about was the state's role in roads. Right. So I wanted to talk, get, get circle back to that, and hear from you and how you view. You know, we had a tax increase that came through on on gasoline. Uh, it, it, two years ago, and right. now you're starting to see a significant construction budget for the state. What is the state's role in, in roads to you? How, what do you think that, you know, you would appoint as governor, the chairperson of NDOT, and you would obviously have significant influence over, over the direction and what happens. How, what do you think the future needs to look like for the state and, and the, the highway highway construction? World? Sure. And, and um, let me start by saying, um, Although my project management experience uh, has been in software development, not in road construction, um, one of the things that I think is fairly obvious to anybody who has any experience with project management whatsoever is that our, uh, our state's management of vendor contracts leaves tons for improvement. We continually, if you if, if you just look at the uh, State Road 37 project uh, that hasn't even really kicked off yet, uh, they got an approval for a certain amount of money. They've already come out and said, hey, we just totally blew the estimate. It's going to be uh, tens of million dollars more than what we expected. And it's because, uh, you know, they... 
they've got the Build Indiana Council over here providing all of these campaign funds for all of these folks in the General Assembly who then turn around and make sure that there's money allocated for construction projects to be handed out by NDOT to the members of the Build Indiana Council. And nobody's managing these contracts. Nobody's holding our contractors to their estimates. Instead of fixed bids, what we do is we let these things go on and on and on. They submit change orders, and they get approved. And a project that should take three months ends up taking a year and a half. And the taxpayers pay for that. And nobody's running up the red flag saying, hey, this has to stop. And I think this is uh, part of the problem. Personally, as a pragmatic libertarian, I believe that if I'm going to pay some taxes, then infrastructure is probably the one shared service that it makes sense that taxes would go to. But I want it done responsibly. I want people held accountable for what is spent and whether or not it's being done correctly. And I think that the future needs to be more accountability, more transparency, and we need to fix the uh, vendor contract management within the state uh, across the board. All right, Bill. Hi, the uh, the the roads. How how do you view the the governor's role in the in the roads? The governor is in charge of assigning the head of the DOT, and rather than doing it as a favor seat to my buddy who's a political friend, uh, I think it should be an engineer. You know, somebody who knows about this business, a professional. Um, we need to put professionals in there who can do exactly what he said, is to know the business, understand it, and know that six yards of concrete costs X amount of dollars, and that's what it costs installed when he gets out to do the bidding. We need a person who understands the industry to head up that department to bring it in together. You know, it, it, it's, it's just bring, put the right person in the right position, and they'll do the right job for the people of Indiana. So... And, if I can just, I, of I apologize, but I, the, the only thing that concerns me about putting an industry professional in charge of a state agency is, again, their connection with all of the other industry professionals. So I would say that it would need to be someone who is able to oversee an agency, and I think this goes for any state agency, the people in charge have to be, you're right, they shouldn't be political appointees who were working on my campaign or who donated or whose brothers, sisters, uncles, mailman's dog gave me a million dollars or anything like that. But we need to make sure that the people who are overseeing state agencies and and the uh, responsibility of uh, managing taxpayer dollars is done by people who can be 
absolutely unattached. I don't have any connection to anybody because that's the problem today. Everybody's somebody's uh, buddy. Uh, you know, if you look back at the vaping issue from a few years ago and the the group of seven uh, college buddies who were able to uh, corner the market on the vaping industry uh, and get those licenses, that's what's wrong with government. And whether you call it corruption or the good old boy system, uh, you know, it all goes back to, if you will, you know, the, the, the soapbox that Andy Horning is on. You know, we've got corruption problems in our government, and we need to fix that. Hallelujah. God love Andy. Um, the, yeah, oh, Holcomb gives it to us in a gift. He looks at everybody and goes, well, I have, you know, seven point blah, blah million dollars to run in my reelection. And it's like, dude, if you get reelected, the first thing you do is you got to pay back the seven million dollars worth of favors you got to get elected. You're not doing it for the people. You're doing it for the corporations because they got you there. We're libertarians. We want the people. We want the non-voters. We want the Democrats and Republicans to cross over. So another uh, another big platform or plank in in a traditional governor's um, daily life is economic development announcements. You know, you'll hear you oh. this this last week we saw that the governor is involved with an announcement of Subaru having a big expansion in, in Lafayette. Um, what's your view in the governor's office in in the role of economic development? Should there should the state be in you know, should the state be spending money on a state economic development organization? Is it a, hey, let things happen naturally because you create an environment? How, where should this be? I think we'll start with Bill this time. All right. Eric has, I think, a billion dollars in the state economic development fund. Um, if we have it and it's existing, I suggest that we use it within the state of Indiana to build up the small businesses rather than going over to foreign nationals who we're at trade war with and have them bring their security, you know, online security company to Indiana, give them a tax break. Is this Infosys we're talking about over on the West side? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's completely insane. We, we, I would rather see a thousand local businesses get a hundred thousand dollar loan to help their businesses or a hundred thousand dollar tax abatement to help their business. If we're going to give it, let's give it in state for development of Hoosier businesses, not to where they're taking the profits out of state. That seems sort of pointless. Don. So first of all, I don't believe that government should be in the business of business. Uh, I believe that, um, there's a, a definitive conflict of interest when you're here again, if you go back to the idea that government is instituted to secure the rights of the individual, when government is focused on bringing new business into the state, then to me that seems like we're not creating an environment to make businesses want to come here. We're having to go out and um, bribe them. 
Exactly. We're ha- we're 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 giving them. Uh, please come to our state now. I propose uh, that we eliminate the personal income tax in Indiana. How the, how would government exist without a personal income tax? What do you mean? Uh, government existed just fine without personal income tax before 1913. As a matter of fact, economically, we grew faster before the income tax. But the reality is, is if you just let let's just take the the concept of the personal income tax. Right now, the governor says that we are bringing more new jobs into the state than we have people to fill them. Okay, well, the simple solution to that is if you eliminate the personal income tax, people from Illinois, California, New York, who are being taxed out the wazoo, will be incentivized to move to Indiana and work here and live here and if they don't have to pay income tax in the state of Indiana, then that money goes back in their pocket. They spend it, and when they spend it, they'll spend it on things that there is a sales tax on. So your sales tax base is increased, basically allowing for pretty much the same amount of money as you were getting from the income tax. So you're saying that you're going to grow by by increasing increased population more folks buy so your sales tax remains the same but you've eliminated the income tax absolutely then we'll and talk, you do we'll, the same thing with the property uh, tax. The, that was the third the other third major tax and i was going to ask about is that you've got a, a one two and three percent tax cap that are in place well and that, and, and the term the, cap is a lie because that, they reassess your property yeah, every right. year and it keeps going up and so what i've proposed is that we eliminate the personal property tax on people's primary residences in order to put more money back in their pocket that will also completely eliminate the possibility of asset forfeiture, especially for senior citizens who've paid off their mortgage, but they still have to pay their property taxes every year. And one day they wake up and they can no longer afford to pay their property tax. And the sheriff is putting a notice on the door saying, we're going to sell your property at sheriff's sale. So we eliminate that by eliminating the personal property tax. We eliminate people who raise their children in a house that by the time the property taxes and the referendums that school districts pile on top of them, get to a certain point, they can no longer pay their mortgage payment. Because here again, when you buy a house or when you build a home, you your mortgage payment is X. And you, you figure we can afford that. But when the assessment keeps going up and up and up and up. You essentially never get rid of your mortgage. And, and the mortgage just keeps getting bigger and bigger and people are losing their homes and it's wrong. So Bill, uh, let's talk about your, your view on taxation in Indiana. You've got Basically, the the big three that individuals deal with: property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes. What would a, a, a Levin tax plan look like in in your first term? Assuming you know, assuming you have fifty one votes in the in the uh, in the, the state house uh, on the on the house side and twenty six on the senate side. Libertarian goal is to reduce taxes across the board. You know. I am not qualified to give you a good answer right now 
because I haven't really pondered that thought. And it would have to be something I would have to study to give you a good answer on. So you caught me with my britches. <laughs> That's all right. No, I, it's cool. I mean, all, all libertarians want less taxes, less government. This is the 101 of liberty. We need to go out there and we need to sell it to the non-voters. Okay. Right now is the time when we sell ourselves to the 80% of our state who doesn't vote. We have to be exciting. We got to be smashing and we got to be full of liberty love and get the 80% of the voters excited about this run. Because right now, people, the normal person doesn't know politics worth a poo. They think the mayors do the highways and they think the governor does the sewers. So we need to lead as libertarians in a positive way that the common people of Indiana who never want to vote get excited about voting and they jump up on our bandwagon and we go to a victory. So right now that should be our main focus is aiming at the 80% that don't have a home right now. We could hope we could house good libertarians. We could house all the homeless voters. We have 80% of our state that are homeless voters. Let's give them a home. Let's welcome them with open arms and smiles. So let's let's it, talk about at, at the highest level. You know, as as libertarians, you want lower taxes, yes. and, and you want to start cutting the size and size and scope of government to pay for the lower taxes. I want to establish what, what a you, ballot what you, initiative so the people of the state of Indiana have a choice about what's going on. But that would take two general assemblies. What uh, what do you want to see cut or trimmed from from the from Indiana's responsibilities as a state? Personal income tax needs to be trimmed. I mean, millionaires don't get taxed, and the middle class and lower class get taxed out the wazoo. You know, it needs to be, it needs to be repaired properly. Don? Well, so, first of all, uh, I think that it is um, troublesome that our, our governor likes to brag about the fact that we have over 50 state agencies in the state of Indiana. I believe the first thing that we need to do is we need to identify what is um, duplicitous in our state government. For example, we have INDOT, which handles the roads. We have the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, which handles cars. And, right, right. So, uh, Those two ad administrative activities could probably be merged into one agency. One uh, unholy body. Yes, absolutely. Now, one of the things, but see, one of the things that we can do to start reducing um, both the overhead and the uh, unnecessary taxation is uh, – if you're going to make people register their vehicle when they purchase it, that's when you do it. After that, this annual ritual of having to re-register and pay excise tax, and we do away with that. And people say, but that money's important. Yes, that money is what they use to pay to keep the Bureau of Motor Vehicles running. If you got rid of all of the unnecessary overhead of telling people they have to register every year. You know, if you sell the vehicle, 
if it changes title, then you have the new person register. So as uh, so, I've, I've, I'm a guy that's run for county office before. So I'm going to raise my hand as the guy that tried to be a county councilman and say, "Damn it, state government, you just stole my my wheel tax, which pays for my county bridge fund." So if you're if you're going to get rid of the annual registration, that that there's forty dollars a year on every car that comes back to my county that pays uh-huh. for for my county roads. Okay. So now my hands out as the county as county commissioner and county councilman saying. You've just taken away my revenue ability. How am I, 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 as a county, I can only ask to tax and to pay for the things that I'm expected to provide by kissing the ring of the state. So you just took away my, my revenue. Now what do I do? Well, so first of all, having run for mayor of Westfield last year, I I will tell you that, um, the, the first thing I'm going to tell the counties and the municipalities is if you would stop using tax increment financing districts, to run up debt that you're going to have to pay for the next 25, 30 years, you might have money to pay for your bridge. But instead, you're paying developers to come in and build something that they're going to make a profit off of, but you're financing it for them with taxpayer money down the road. So let's fix the problem. Let's not whine because... We're giving the individual their money back. Um, it is not the individual Hoosier's responsibility to make sure that a commercial developer can afford to build a building that they're going to lease out and make millions of dollars off of. If they can't afford to build the building, they shouldn't be in that business. That's corporate welfare, and we don't believe in that. Bill, what, what do you say? I, I, I'm, I'm hearing TIF money falling from the sky. Uh, what, say the question again. I don't even know where we're at anymore. We've, we've wandered a touch. We, we, we've wandered. You but, know, we're, 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 but we, started, we started with um, corruption. How, how we're re- reducing the size, what, you know, what we want to do, and then we, we got into TIF money, and, and, I, and some of what Don's talked about here is, is – I'm in Henry County. I'm just gonna I'm gonna play class welfare here. You're talking about Hamilton County problems of new and upcoming and and, and the the massively developing communities. But they do it in Marion well, County. But, and- but the the old, you know, we'll say the Andersons, well, the the Kokomos, the Muncies, the Newcastles that have less population than they did before, and you don't have the growth and investment. Sure. The TIFs aren't aren't there as much. So I don't know that. Well, that's the what conversation. is Hamilton County going to give Indianapolis road money because you guys keep coming down to work on our roads? You know, you come to Indianapolis all the time working our roads. Shouldn't we have a... <laughs> yes, and we come down there and we eat in your restaurants and we pay your exorbitant ticket prices for your sporting events. And That's not yeah, ours. So that's, that's an independent businessman. I've, I've successfully taken the governor's debate and turned it into 92 <laughs> counties pitted against each other. So I'm going to declare this a success. No, I, I to, to get back to your question, I, I really believe that, um, you know, it's a chicken or the egg type of, of question, right? And so one of the things that, that I've, done is kind of branded this idea of the uh, big government Pythagorean theorem, right? You've got the triangle of big government, which is taxation, debt, and spending. And if you want to reduce spending, the only way you do it is to reduce the debt 
put a debt ceiling on, make it a hard debt ceiling that the General Assembly can't just come back and raise every time like Congress does. And then you cut taxation. If you want to, you know, I don't know about you, but I could use to lose a few pounds. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I cut my caloric intake and my carbs. And taxation and debt are like calories and carbs. And I'm not going to be able to cut my weight, cut my spending, if I don't cut the other two first. Because if the government has a dollar, they'll spend it. And if they they don't have the dollar, they'll borrow it in order to spend it. And the reality is, is that we have a Republican supermajority in this state and a Republican governor, and they're spending money like it's going out of style. And where Bill's correct in the fact that we, we definitely need to appeal to the 2 million voters who were registered in 2016 but didn't vote. There were 4.8 million registered voters in 2016 in the state of Indiana. Only 2.8 million of them actually cast a ballot. So there's 2 million people who didn't have a reason to vote. We need to find who they are and get their attention. But we also have Republicans and Democrats, or at least people who perceive themselves to be, who are disenfranchised and disillusioned with what they see going on. And they're looking for somebody to say, hey, we still stand for the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the principles of fiscal responsibility and individual freedom. And I believe those people will look at us and at least consider right now casting a vote for us. When I ran for mayor last year in Westfield, I actually had 91 people who came out to the polls and pushed the straight ticket libertarian button. And I I don't understand that because there was one libertarian on the ballot. It was me. Yep. But they came out to vote and voted straight. didn't vote for any of the Republicans. I think there's a, a disenfranchised feeling, and we need to tap into that. So we're, we're pushing the 75-minute mark here on, on oh, our conversation. It's, a, it's fine. Um, that's, that's what we're here to do is to talk. Um, and I, I just want to wrap up a couple of, a couple of items here, and, and I want to give you each a chance to talk about your campaign, and then I'll give, give you each a chance for some final thoughts to clean up anything that we left out or issues that you wanted to get to that I didn't. Um, so I, Bill, I, if you want to tell us a little bit about your, your campaign and the infrastructure and, and how you're ready to, to go from this point through to the general and what your vision is for what your campaign is going to look like statewide from, All right, from well, here to the end. First off, here in November, uh, Levin2020.org. Um, we're up online and, uh, wow, I have 117, uh, volunteers right now. Uh, many of them are not have never voted before, which is sort of cool. I mean, they're not libertarian, Democrat, or Republican. It's like I've never voted, but I'm volunteering for you, which is like. Um, we had a team go out and uh, distribute posters throughout the state. Uh, posters and buttons are uh, circulating throughout the whole state. 
Uh, I have a summer of concerts that I will be uh, talking at, uh, public events, car, car shows. Do you have any car people up here, by the way? Of course. This is the, one of all the very right, first. When this is all one, over, Newcastle, one of the very first car uh, car factories in the world, was right here in Maxwell. The Maxwell is made here in Newcastle. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. When this is over, I got a car thing. I got to talk to you about that's really sort of cool. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to be having libertarian booths at all these events. Um, we're going to go out and just sing the song of liberty, and we're going to tell people we love them, and we're going to encourage them to vote. And we're going to do our best to get as many people on that bandwagon as possible. We have some incredible numbers. Um, I, I keep, you know, when the announcement came out that I was running for governor, um, I did not, you know, say, hey, let's do this. This was a sneak attack by a local reporter who uh, announced it. Uh, and at 7 o'clock in the morning, my phone started blowing up. Uh, and that caused for a chain of events, which was just ridiculous. Um, High Times came in after that, and then Leafly came in after that, and then all sorts of other podcasts. I have tracked that I have made uh, $113,000 worth of media in the last 90 days, just uh, uh, from one of the uh, publicity firms. They ran me some numbers, which is pretty amazing, and it's a really positive response we're getting across the state. So, uh, yeah, we're out there grinding. Uh, we're pushing, and we're going to have a great time. Uh, earn media credit's a fabulous thing, and uh, that's how libertarians travel. Fantastic. Don, t- tell us about what the, the Rainwater Governor's Campaign will look like between now and in November, assuming you're the nominee. Well, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I haven't had the uh, time that uh, Bill has had. I, I ran, uh, as I've mentioned before, for mayor of Westfield up through November. Uh, This was something that uh, uh, several people talked to me about and we decided to do um, actually at the beginning of February. Um, So I am currently uh, seeking the nomination from the party. Uh, I plan, uh, if I get the nomination, uh, to sit down with some folks, put together a uh, campaign team. One of the things that uh, here again, uh, I've been talking to folks like uh, Mark Rutherford and Jeff Maurer about uh, uh, engaging people who uh, did not vote in the last cycle. That two million voters, um, you know, Governor Holcomb got 1.4 million votes in 2016. So. Uh, with 2 million untapped voters, we have an opportunity. Uh, I believe that one of the ways that we can reach them is through uh, educating uh, those folks about uh, the mail-in absentee ballot program. Uh, The state uh, gives us the ability to request an absentee ballot in the mail. Uh, They'll mail it to you. You can vote. And mail it back in. And if the issue that people have with voting is getting up, going to a polling place, dealing with the stress of the polling place, uh, this is an opportunity for us to engage some of those voters. Um, My campaign will be focused on uh, those three elements of reducing the size and scope of state government, 
um, securing the rights of the individual. Here again, I think that focusing uh, on the fact that as libertarians, we believe in the sovereignty of the individual and that there is no uh, more important uh, identity than the uniqueness of an individual and that government needs to work for everybody uh, and then putting money back in people's pockets. Very good. Is there anything else that uh, that we've left off here? This is our traditional final thoughts p- portion of the program here on, on Boss Hog, uh, where it's your chance to pitch something. It's your chance to say, hey, here's, a, here's how you volunteer for me. Say, hey, dummy, you didn't ask me about this issue, and it's really important, and we needed to talk about it. This is your catch-all opportunity. We'll start with Bill, and then we'll wrap up with Don. Um, if there's anything else we've forgotten that we needed to get to. There's a million things, but we don't have the time. Oh, you know. All right. I love you. Thank you very much for having us here in this very cool studio. Uh, look, for those of you who can't see this, this is really a nice studio. They got lighting rigs on the floor. They got lighting and they got soundproofing on the walls with lights over here. This is a real professional studio. When they first said, hi, come in for our podcast, I was thinking, you know, kitchen table. No, no, no. This is an outstanding room. And as Okay, hold on. Let me address the libertarians. You're extremely kind. Let, let, let me address the libertarians. Libertarians out there who are watching this, these guys got the coolest clubhouse in the world up here. They have a production studio, and then they have a dining room and hangout room and meeting room. You need to come up here and visit. Um, it's just a fantastic facility. Anyway, there's the pitch for the room. There we I go. I really dig it. <laughs> Don. Okay, so uh, first of all, I want to thank you for watching, and I want to ask you for your vote at the state convention on March 7th. Um, Obviously, you have a choice here. We've given you uh, a couple of options. I think that uh, Bill and I have both uh, given you some uh, diversity of thought, and I would like to have your vote on March 7th if you're a delegate to the state convention. My website uh, you can find it at three different URLs, donrainwater.com, donaldrainwater.com, or rainwater, the number four, indiana.com. Go out, take a look. Uh, if you've got questions, uh, hit the contact link, and of course, uh, hit the issues. You can see my take on all of the issues, and if you feel so disposed, hit the donate button. Give us a donation. We could definitely use it. Very good. Uh, I thank each of you for, uh, for, for joining us tonight. Uh, we're, we're very happy to, uh, to have you on, on the program. Uh, once again, if you want to uh, come out to the Libertarian Convention and be a part of the process, uh, lpion.org is where anybody that's watching can, uh, can buy a ticket to come out to the convention and then, uh, Oh, we're flogging convention tickets to the uh, public. Of course. Uh, well, I mean, you can, well, uh, people, people can come join. Ladies uh, and gentlemen, let's have a moment here. Do you want to come to one of the coolest conventions <laughs> in the world? Well, we're going to have it coming up right here on March 7th and 8th at the, at the Eastside Marriott. At right? the Eastside Marriott in Indianapolis. You'll love it. It's got a lot of fun and we're going to have pirates. You so, can. I love you. I'll see you there this next weekend. You can. You can join the party at any time. Whether yeah. or not you get to vote in the convention, that's uh, that's questionable, and will be determined at that time. But you can definitely buy a ticket and attend and be a part of the process. Yeah, yeah, it's a very absolutely. Cool and there's a candidate uh, meet and greet on Friday evening at six p.m. Uh, there at the Marriott East at Twenty First and Shadeland in Indianapolis. You can come out 
and take a few minutes to ask us individually some questions. Many of the uh, presidential hopefuls are also going to be there, so you can uh, meet with them as well. Uh, And then Bill and I will be reprising our act here uh, at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> you get to be good uh, and, uh, good buddies throughout this, throughout this right. process. You meet it. up and have the conversation. We, yeah. we, have, we have seen each other at several locations <laughs> and, and spoken frequently over the last couple of weeks. Awesome. Thank you both for being here. And, uh, uh, Thank you for having Of course. Yeah. We'll have, uh, we'll have more evergreen uh, programs on the Boss Hog between now and when we uh, come back for our live shows. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Boss Hog of Liberty, which is part of the We Are Libertarians network. I am Chris Spangle, and I am the founder of this network. And I invite you to listen to all of our shows, which you can find at wearelibertarians.com or by searching for these in your podcatcher. The flagship show is the We Are Libertarians podcast, where we apply libertarian principles to current events. The Brian Nichols Show is a conversation amongst Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents, as they talk about what is happening in the news. And we have many other podcasts like The Chris Spangle Show, Upward, The Cost, Raw Audio Politics, Miranda's World, and Tad Talk, which is quite a ride. So check all of these out. Go to WeAreLibertarians.com and you can check out all of our great podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at WeAreLibertarians.com.